The music is provided by Calvary Quartet. You can have more of their music at calvaryquartet.com or log on to our website at gospelbaptistchurch.com. greater joy than when your children walk in truth as a born-again believer. But the opposite of that is also true. There may be no greater pain than if your children decide not to walk in truth. And many of you in this room today represent those folks. But many of you in this room also represent a group of people whose children decided, or child, or one of the children, decided to walk in truth. Uh, There is a balance in the Bible between our part as parents in this whole thing of raising children and your children's free will. And when I say balance, I mean it. The Bible teaches a balance, but it is easily put out of balance by men that teach the Bible. And I've heard it taught in every way. I've heard it taught that a parent's totally responsible for the outcome of their children. Basically, the Calvinists, I call them fatalists, where they'll say that your child is a product of his environment. That's a circumstantial psychology. So if you raise a child as A, B, if you do A, B, C, you'll get D. But as life plays out, that usually makes pretty obvious that that's not so. I've also heard people over on this side that say what you do as a parent doesn't make any difference. If your child is going to do what they're going to do, and they're going to decide what they decide, and you really have little influence on it, that also is not true. Neither extreme is true. Biblically, the truth lies in the middle where parents have influence over their children and are biblically commanded to do the right thing by their children and to lead them in the way that they should walk. But the children also have this free will that God himself breathed into Adam. See, when he breathed into Adam the breath of life and made Adam in his image, what did he do? Do we look like God? I hope not. I mean, I hope not. We don't look like God. We're made in his image. And and part of that means that you have a a free will, a volitional will. You have the ability to choose. You have also cognizance, self-existence, spiritual responsibility. There's a lot. You're also a creator. Uh, Men have been given the ability to create. In fact, the Bible says that men have done some things that never even came into the mind of God. 
that created evil that he had never even thought of. So in a, in a negative way, they became creators. Uh, we have the ability to do things that we're not even, we don't even know we have the ability to do. During the Tower of Babel, an interesting statement was made when the people of the earth got together and said, you know, he told them to, uh, to spread out, multiply, and fill the earth, and dominate it, and rule it like they should, you know. And uh, they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to all stay together here. We're going to build a tower up to heaven. And, uh, and, and it's interesting when God looked at them and said, uh, you know, there's nothing they imagine to do they can't do. Now, you think how the impact of that statement. Read the Bible. It's there. If they put their minds to it in a united way, there's nothing that will come up into their imagination that they cannot accomplish. Woo, that's huge. So we've been given in his image a lot of different things. We're moral creatures. Animals are not moral creatures. Much as I like animals, and I really do like animals, they're not moral creatures. They're not who we are. We are different than they are. And we have a moral responsibility with this. Because every asset has a liability, but every asset also has a responsibility. And so we've been given great assets and great liberties, but we've also been given great responsibilities and nothing else. No, the angels have not been given the same thing we have. The animals have not been given the same thing we have. Today I want to talk to you about the balance of parenting uh, and your child's free will. Um, you say, I feel like I'm just about qualified to begin to preach on this. If you have children at home, you're probably not qualified to talk about this. Uh, you pretty much have to go through the process, get on the other side of the process, and, and become a grandpa or grandma. No, but I mean, really, you have to live a little bit to understand the big picture of this because there's a lot of this misinformation goes as people are young and with their kids. They're under, under uh, high school. And they'll say, well, look how good my kids are. I said, oh, it's, it's far from over. I mean, come on. Who can't intimidate somebody in sixth grade or under? But it's when they get to be seventh grade, eighth grade. In fact, I talked to administrators. I've gone to administrative meetings. And the administrators say this. If we could cut out seventh and eighth grade, we'd have a great school. <laughs> what happens in seventh and eighth grade? You know. And it changes the game plan. When my little granddaughter was, uh, uh, i got to be careful here. Um, when my granddaughter, as, as she was growing up, very sweet little soul. I just love, love her. Her name's Brim. I got her mama. Uh, she named her Brin, and, and I never heard the word Brin before because I haven't been around much. And I said, oh, Brim. She says, don't call her Brim. Call her Brin. I said, I'll call her what I want to call her. Start out a relationship that way. But uh, Brenny, little Brenny, she's sweet, sweet little soul, and, I, and I've been enjoying her fellowship and everything. But she, as she gets older, I tell my wife, enjoy this, because sometimes when they get through that 7th and 8th grade period of time, they change. They change. And, uh, uh, and you lose them. That's why you'll see first through the, the K3 through the 6th grade teachers with mostly smiles on their face. <laughs> And the 7th to the 12th grade teachers go around. Because it gets to be. I will say this. 10th, 11th, and 12th are good years. 10th, 11th, 12th are good years. Uh, 7th, 8th, 9th, tough years. Tough years. 7th, 8th especially. But anyway, now that you know all that, 
Um, there's something you don't know. It's been said, let me give you some truism. Having children is not for you to teach them, but for them to teach you. I have to say amen. My son, in raising him, taught me tremendous lessons. I only had one child. But in that, in that raising of that one child, tremendous life lessons were taught me that uh, I remembered in, in the back of my mind, I remember my mother saying something. I hope you have children. And that they act just the way you are. Today's worldly philosophy on children is completely opposite of the Bible's. Let me give you some comparisons. See if you agree. The world says children are a burden. The Bible says children are a blessing. The world says children are a drain on your wealth. The Bible says they are your wealth. The, the world says children are overpopulating the earth. The Bible says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I have to stop there because I just saw this on TV on one of those nature shows. They're losing the grasslands in Africa. I don't know if you know this, but the desert's taken over and they're losing the grasslands of Africa. They went back years ago with film and showed the massive herds of animals on these grasslands and how they supported these massive herds of animals. So man, being as smart as he is, says, the reason we're losing the grasslands is because there's too many animals. So they just started killing off. They killed off 40,000 elephants. They killed off all kinds of other, and the grasslands began to deteriorate faster. So this one old boy who bought a piece of land and did an experiment, filled his land with animals, overpopulated his land with animals, and kept driving them. Because what we did is we killed the predators off, the lions, the tigers, the leopards, and things, which used to drive the herds and keep them moving. But when there's no predators, the herds stay in one spot and eat everything, kill everything, and don't move. But he said if there's predators, it moves the, the herds, and the herds continue to move. They don't eat everything, but what do their hooves do? They plow the land, and what else do animals do? They fertilize the land, they plow the land, and they move on. And what does the grass do after you open it up, aerate it, fertilize it? It grows grass. So what they eventually came to the conclusion of is that we need more animals on these lands, not less. I think the same mistake has been made about human population. The world says, be free from responsibility, only have two children. The Bible says, have a quiver full of them. That's what the Bible says. The world says, be, um, I just read that. The, the world says be a house, being a housewife and a mother is a downer. The Bible says it's the greatest calling. The world says have a large family is, having a large family is too risky. The Bible says, trust me. The world says having children makes you vulnerable to much pain. The Bible says unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die... It abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's parenting, if you think about it. Because there's not a parent in here who hasn't suffered pain because they're a parent. The first time I had to spank my kid, hurt my feelings. The second time wasn't so bad. <laughs> 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, take your Bibles if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, we're a Bible preaching church. This isn't human wisdom time, this is Bible time. Deuteronomy 6, 5, 6 and 7, read down through verse 9. Uh, can you hear me? Is anybody here that cannot hear me? Raise your hand. Think of that question. Anybody here that can read my lips but not hear me? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Is it cool enough in here for everybody? I'm not going to change it. I just thought I'd ask you. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Notice that is number one. You need to circle that. Number one, with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine where? Not in your mind. Deuteronomy, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. That's an assumption that you're going to have. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. That's casual teaching. More than having a set down, we're going to have devotions, and you're going to listen. That don't work too good. I'm not against that. But if you don't do this other stuff, setting down having 15 minutes isn't going to do much good. You got to teach like Jesus taught. How'd he teach? He was going along the way. He saw this. He told his disciples, Stop, let's look at this. Here's a lesson. Ooh, that's the best way. That's the best way. Can't always be the way, but it's a good way. He said in verse 8, Thou shalt bind them in the sign upon thine hand, and thou shalt be in frontless between thine eyes. That means they need to be pervasive and consuming. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. I'm going to ask a question. How many have the Bible? on your doorway or your entrance to your home. Do you? Okay, there's about there's about about ten of us, about ten of us. I, I you many of you don't have gates and I understand that. I have a I have a gate. And on my gate I put I put Psalm 127 verse 1 2 right on the gate. What's your verse? Okay. Uh, I don't have time to ask everybody what their verses is, but I put the Bible because I read that. He says, have it on your house. And so then I put the Bible in my house. I hope you have Bible in your house. I hope that if I came to your house and you died and you weren't there, and I toured your house, that I'd say, this guy's, this person's a Christian. That's what God's talking about. If you love me and you, you are mine, then you're going to have my word around your place. It's going to be on your gate. It's going to be on your home. It's going to be in your Bible, it's going, to be, it's going to be around. You're going to have it. It's going to be pervasive. That's what it's talking about. We have a dilemma of parents. It's going on since Adam and Eve that, are, that love the Lord and want to do right, and they raise children, and some of those children decide not to be Christian. Some of those children decide they don't want anything their parents have taught them. I'm not going to have a raise. I'll show of hands here how many have children that are out of the way, that have turned away from faith. I'm not going to ask you that, but it would be many in this room if you have very many children. And Part of the problem is the balance between performance and our heart. If you notice in Deuteronomy chapter 6 there, he talked about the heart being number one. Now, I think with God, performance is important. In other words, I'm going to show you how in the Bible it talks about if you love me, keep my commandments. If you're a friend of mine, you know, you'll keep my commandments. He says up here, blessed are they not hear the word of God, but do what? Keep it. So performance is good. Performance is natural for somebody who has a heart. 
But the problem is, the definition of, of hypocrisy is when you have performance, but you don't have a heart. You, you, you worship God with your lips. You worship God with your performance, but your heart's not really in it. I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart. I don't love my wife because she cooks for me and cleans for me and washes the dishes and clean, you know, does what I ask her to do. That, that helps me, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason I love her is from my heart. I gave her my heart years ago. She gave me her heart years ago. And we have continued to try to fertilize that relationship of the heart. It doesn't and cannot survive if you leave it alone. It's like the bus ministry. That ministry tends to die, not live. And your marriage tends to die, not live. So you have to be proactive at making your relationship better. That's why the book by Jim Binney is so good. When it's called, the title says it all, and everybody ought to at least read it one time. It says, The Ministry of Marriage. I had a young couple in this church said, that that book saved my marriage. I had another guy not long ago come to me and say, out of the blue said, the Ministry of Marriage book saved my marriage. Now, there aren't many books that I've ever told people to read that they'll come back to me and say, it saved my marriage. That ought to tweak your curiosity enough to read it, amen? But there has to be an understanding between the balance of performance and your heart. God wants your heart first. He says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Psalm 119.9, it says, With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Uh, Isaiah 29.13 says, uh, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips and do honor me, they honor him. But remove their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of man. It's shallow. It's not real. So the first thing I'd say as a parent is to fall in love with Jesus, decide that he is the one, and seek him, and continue to fertilize that relationship by doing what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. The key is the heart. God wants your heart. Man, I don't want my wife to tell me I'm married to you because I have to be. Now, she could say that. That would be true. She could say to me, Brother Bill, I signed a piece of paper. I, I, I gave a vow for a bunch of folks that I'd, I'd stay with you for better or for worse, and man, it's been bad. Through sickness and health, and you've been sickly. For better or for richer or poor, and you are poor. Till death do us part, and I've contemplated that. But I'm sticking with you because I'm a, I'm a person of my word, and I'm going to stick with you. Now, I don't want a woman to stay with me because of that. I want her to say, you're the greatest thing ever happened to me. Is she here today? You want to come up here, Kathy, and tell them? She's in the nursery. The spirit of person. What is the heart? It's the spirit of a person. Intellect, emotions, and will. The seat of your of who you are. Example would be a person uh, is not right with God. You when you walk in, you can feel it. When 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 if Tom was upset with me, and I, why would you ever do that? But if Tom was upset with me for some reason, and I walked in a room, I could feel it. I could just feel it. 
how, is, how many have experienced that? All of you. You walk in a room and you just feel somebody's mad. You two young marriage, you ever walk in a room and I'm sure you've never had a fight yet. But I mean, you young marriage, we older folks walk in, you can feel when it's not right. Or you can almost, have you ever had an atmosphere you can almost cut it with a knife? But that's called the cold shoulder. I mean, you walk in and say, whoa, something's wrong here now. What is that? That's your heart. Sensing your spirit, sensing that. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. It's there. Uh, but God wants your heart right. When you're not right with God, you you try to avoid Him. You try to stay away from Him. You don't. You know. You just kind of like you're just. There's. You know. There's not some man. When I sin and do wrong, ugh, there's like a twist in my spirit. It's just. I just don't feel like. Ooh, it's just. It's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling. But we have to have performance. Of course, I want my wife to love me with a heart and then to do what I tell her to do. When I tell her to do it. How I tell her to do it. Oh, boy, you girls, I tell you, you're upset with me now. I can feel it. If she loves me, she likes to help me. She wants to help me. She wants to help me improve me, and there's a lot of room there. She can help me. Um... Performance counts for the person who has his heart in it. So our goal is that we have our heart in the things of God, and then our performance follows that. The, 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 what you don't want is the performance to be alone. The performance to be what it's all about. Years ago, let me do you a little historical lesson here that I've actually lived. In the 50s and 60s, public schools were pretty godly. Now, let me repeat that again. My fourth grade teacher made us memorize Psalm 100, made us memorize Psalm 23, had us quoting scriptures that she was about 60-some years old. There was a group of teachers retiring about that time, and they were being replaced by 24-year-olds, which makes sense. They go to school, they get their BA, and they start teaching about 23, 24 years old. So these 60-some-year-old teachers were being replaced by these 24-year-old teachers. That's a pretty big gap there, right? And, but these 60-some-year-old teachers, man, they, were, they said, we, we would pray before we ate. We would, these were public school, public school, Elkhart, Indiana. Fairly godly. You know what, the, 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 you, know what you got spanked for? Chewing gum in class. Sassing back to the teacher. Uh, throwing a paper on the playground. I mean, that's what you got spanked for. Today... You don't want to hear what they get spanked. You don't want to, first of all, they don't get spanked. There's been a huge change in the public system. If, if you think the public system is, is anywhere close to being where God wants your kid to be, you need to come and talk to me. But in the 50s and 60s, even then towards the 60s, that new teacher group of teachers came in. They, they were different than them old teachers. They believed in a thing called evolution. They didn't believe the Bible. In other words, if the Bible's not right in the first 11 chapters, just throw it away. If this thing is not right in the first 11 chapters, don't read it. Throw it away. If God cannot, if God's word is not true on how he made everything, how can I trust him on how he's going to save me? But the fact is, it is true. And there's nothing in, there's nothing in science to tell me it's not true. 
And so right off the bat, evolution comes in to try to undermine the very foundation of the Word of God. That in the beginning, God created everything in a six-day period. He created everything, six real 24-hour days. See, my God's not small. He's big. Because when you look at the Hubble telescope, I said, my God, the God, I, the God I serve created everything a Hubble telescope sees and beyond. Now, a God that big can take care of me. God that big can save me. God that big, he tells something, it's the truth. So, they start undermining. These new teachers came in, they believe in evolution. New teachers came in, they didn't believe the Bible was true. They believed the Bible was a story, a collection by man, not accurate. Virgin birth wasn't real. Jesus was born of a of another way. He was more natural like everybody else was. They didn't believe in the deity of Christ. They didn't believe hardly anything. And an agnosticism began to creep in through the teachers that you were sending your children to. They were going to church on Sunday for two, three hours, and then they were going 35 hours during the week to a bunch of agnostics, atheists. And the parents of Christians said, that ain't right. That's wrong. That's wrong. We got responsibility for God to teach our children. Read it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? And so what happened was the Christian school movement was born. We, we, we gathered our kids from the public system, and we spent millions and billions of dollars on buildings and hiring teachers, and the, the, the Christian school movement was born in the early 60s and late 60s, went on and blossomed into the 70s and blossomed into the 80s and got gigantic. And we thought we were going to have a group of super kids Super Christians come out of the Christian school movement. Amen? Didn't you? Makes sense to me. If you take a kid and you put him in an environment where, the, where you got saved teachers, where you got the Bible taught as true, where the curriculum is Christ-centered, you would come out with a product. But something happened. Something happened. It didn't happen. In fact, a lot of the kids came out worse than they came out of public schools. Because uh, an article written by Frank Hamrick years ago in a, in a magazine they called Proteins, he said, are we educating, it's the title of the article, are we educating Christian robots with no heart? Remember that heart thing we talked about? Performance, no heart. Performance, no heart. They were scripture quoting, modest dressing, no earring boys, no long-haired boys, no cussing, no drinking, no smoking boys, no drug, no sex, but no heart for God. I mean, they were just no heart for God. When the Bible says in Proverbs 23, 6, my son, give me thine heart. They were fulfilling the scripture there in Isaiah where I quoted that they, 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 they gave God honor with their lips and they knew this Bible is, as, and could quote it better than their parents, but they just really had no heart for God. Well, that's not what we were shooting for. We were shooting for a group of kids that had a heart for God. And so then the homeschooling movement was birthed on the dissatisfaction of the results of the Christian schools the homeschooling movement was birthed. I was there when they started talking about doing it. And eventually now some 2 million children under homeschooling. But, and we thought, man, the homeschoolers, we'll bring them with the mom and dad. We'll keep them away from the world. We'll keep them away from other kids. We'll isolate, and they will be super Christians. Well, that's been about 20-some years now. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. 
There's all kinds of the same sins that were in the public school educated kids and that were in the Christian educated kids are now also found in the home school educated kids. In fact, different sins, but still sins, are in each group. What is that telling us? If you look back and look at that big picture, what's that tell you? Environment doesn't make a good Christian. Are you listening to me? Environment doesn't produce a good Christian of itself. Of itself. Now, as parents, are we responsible to give our kids a good environment? Absolutely, folks. The Bible says it. We're supposed to do it. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Be not deceived. Evil communication corrupts good morals. That means company or evil company. You put your kids among a bunch of evil people, that's wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Proverbs 19, 27 says, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth thee to err from the words of knowledge. We're not supposed to put our kids under a bunch of agnostics and a bunch of atheists and a bunch of folks who deny the Bible and are immoral in their life and are teaching that homosexuality is just a fine thing. We're not supposed to put our kids under that. We're directly commanded of God not to do that as Christians. We're also told in Jeremiah 10, 2, learn not the way of the heathen. Don't do it. But also, that's not the whole, that's, you, you say, well, I did that, Brother Bill. I took them, I gave them a, a total environment of Christian thinking and Christian uh, scripture and everything, and they still decided to turn away from God. Really? Yeah, it's true. It happens. But there's other reasons why kids do this. It's not just the atmosphere that they're in as far as knowledge goes, but there's something else that happens that turns kids away. It's hypocrisy hypocrisy. The Bible says in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all these ways. The Pharisees were considered guilty of hypocrisy by Jesus in Matthew 23.28, where it says, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. One thing I know about, about teenagers is that they have the ability to sniff out hypocrisy. A teenager has some sort of a sharp gift to be able to tell when somebody's trying to fake it till they make it. I don't know if they keep that gift, but they got it for a period of time there. So as a parent, if you're raising a child and trying to show them this is the way walk you in it, and you yourself are not doing that, and you yourself are being, becoming now a hypocrite. Now, I'm not talking, how many in here have ever sinned? All of us. How many in here have been perfect parents? None of us. How many in here as a parent have done wrong? All of us. Kids are not looking for perfect parents. If they did, they wouldn't find them. Amen. What are they looking for? Real parents. People that when they make a mistake or if they sin, they say, that was wrong. Parents, uh, kids need to see you apologize, men, to your wife for acting like a stupid idiot. One amen, this whole group. That's sad. (laughs) I should have. Kids are looking for parents, women that will, in front of the kids, because you threw a fit in front of them, you got to get in front of them and ask your husband to forgive you for not serving him better. I just love to talk to you ladies. You know where I'm coming from. Come on. 
If you aren't real in front of your children and they don't see that you're real, if they don't see that when you fail you are remorseful and broken and that you hate the very some of the very things you say and do yourself and you acknowledge them as wrong and you ask God to forgive you and they see that process of healing going on, but if they don't see that, and they see you're just trying to fake it till you make it, you're just trying to keep your, there's a British show, a comedy show called Putting on Airs, I think it is. Putting on Airs, putting, am I close to that? Putting on Airs, I feel lonely. You know, it's a British comedy. Appearances, putting on appearances, is that it? I don't have a very good memory, and I can't speak British. But anyway, keeping up appearances. Is that it? Am I getting close? Keeping up appearances. Okay, I got it. I got the thumbs up. That's what a lot of parents are doing. And then they're wondering why their kids don't want to be a Christian. Man, I don't want to be a Christian with parents like that. If my mom and dad can't live it and it's not real, why would I want to follow what they're telling me? My mom and dad were not perfect by a mile. My mother came from a family who was a swearer. They, they swore like sailors. And my mother, sweet, wonderful, born again, love the Lord lady. And I love her and you know I do. But when she got mad, she'd flip out. And she would call me everything but white. <laughs> and I mean everything. And then she'd cry and cry and cry about how she hated that and how it was wrong. I deserved every bit, by the way. But you know what I saw in my mom and dad? She's a Christian. My mom's a Christian. I didn't think about that cussing. I didn't think about that fits she had. I, I just thought about that this, this woman's real. This woman's real. She loves Jesus. She believes in forgiveness. Eh. And as I grew up and saw that, I thought, that's right. I saw my dad do things that were wrong, straight out wrong. But he'd get right about it. And he'd ask God to forgive him. It's not whether we do wrong. It's how we get right. Another thing to turn away kids away from you and make them where they don't want to be a Christian is bitterness and unresolved conflicts. Ephesians 4.31 said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. In Hebrews 12.15 it says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. How many? Many. It can be anything. Bitterness can come up in a form. It can be stupid. Bitterness can be stupid. It can be that your dad promised to take you to a baseball game and had a, had a call where he couldn't go or something in business. He couldn't make it, and, and he had to come to you and say, son, I can't take a baseball game. And the kid gets bitter over the dad about that and then ruins his whole life, comes home, you know, with 15, 16 tattoos, uh, rings everywhere, just to make his dad hate the whole thing. Over a little bitterness that started so many years ago unresolved. Don't you let anything get unresolved in your life. Deal with it as it comes home. Deal with it the day it comes by. Deal with it. Ask forgiveness. Go to your dad and say, Dad, you know you asked me to do this. You didn't do it. Dad will probably be glad to say, hey, forgive me for that. Forgive me for that. I didn't even remember. A lot of times the people that are bitter, the one that, that caused me to be bitter, the guy doesn't even know what happened. Don't even know what happened. But the one that's bitter knows, woo-wee, 
we had a seminar years ago I went to, and they talked about if there's anybody you think's bitter at you, go try to get it right. I thought, okay, Lord, there's nobody. I've not heard anybody. I'm not, I, and nobody, and all of a sudden, God brings a name, a person in my mind, not a name. I said, you must be mistaken about that. Isn't that the way we do things? You ask God, show me if there's anybody that would be bitter at me. He brings somebody to your mind. You say, that, that can't be right. So I went home arguing with God. The next day I was arguing with God a little bit. And I said, you know, God, first of all, you didn't give me the name. Number two, it's been years ago. Number three, that person's probably dead and gone. But for your sake, I'll contact one person, Larry Conger, and I'll call Larry and see if he remembers who that person is. He won't remember. I called Larry. Larry said, yeah, here's her name and phone number. I said, you have to be kidding me, Larry. You've got to be kidding me. You know who this woman is? Yeah, I know who this woman is. I said, okay. I called the woman up. I said, you remember years ago I told you that if I, I was going to give you 50 bucks if you did something for me? And she said, yeah, you never paid me. I had forgotten about it because the one that owes the money has memory trouble. I said, you know, you're absolutely right. You know how long? That was like 10 years earlier, so it was way back. I said, you know, I am so sorry. I absolutely, it was an oversight. I forgot about it. You don't owe me, she said. But the fact that she remembered that told me what? Yeah. Yeah. So I said, I'm sending it to you. You're good. You can throw it away. You can rip it up. You can do anything you want to. You can be bitter at me for sending it to you, but I'm going to send it to you. But I sent her uh, $50 plus a gift certificate to something else. I sent her some flowers, asked her to forgive me. That's all I knew to do. I'm free now. I'm free. That's the way you need to be. You need to be free. This morning, you ought to be able to sit back and say, God, show me anybody that's bitter at me and help me to get free. If he shows you, do it. Just do it, whatever the length, whatever it is. With your children, how much more is that important to do with your kids? We're supposed to forgive. Be transparent. But there's a variable in this whole equation of raising kids. You can have the right performance, and you cannot be a hypocrite, and you can be careful of bitterness that it doesn't develop, but you still may have a child who says, I don't want to live for Jesus. And that's the crazy part about this whole thing, because as I studied through the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles specifically, and as I went through the kings of Judah, uh, I, I noticed something here that shocked me, but it was a pattern and a testimony of parenting. And what it was is, there was four good parents in, in Chronicles, kings of Israel, who had four good kids. There were five good parents in the Chronicles who had five bad kids. There was four bad parents in Chronicles who had four good kids. And there was six bad uh, parents in Chronicles who had bad kids. Do you get that? There is some of the good who had good. Asa was a good king. He had Jehoshaphat. Uzziah was a good king. He had Jotham. Now, good parents who had bad kids. Solomon had Rehoboam. Jehoshaphat had Jehoram. Hezekiah, which was a good king, had Manasseh, which was one of the worst kings ever came around. Josiah, which was a fabulous, greatest revival, greatest Passover happened was under Josiah. He had Jehoahaz, which was a bad king. Bad kings had good sons. You have Abijam had Asa, which was a good man. You had Ahaz, he birthed Hezekiah. 
You had Amnon, which was bad, had a good son, Josiah. What does that tell me about all that? It tells me that the outcome is not always predictable. Now here, let me get this in quick because I know the time's gone. Parent, you have a responsibility to do right, to be real, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, provide the best atmosphere, godly atmosphere, not to be a hypocrite, confess your faults, look for bitterness, teach the truth. You're supposed to do all that as a parent. But as you do all that, it is possible that you would have a child that would say to you, I don't want to be a Christian. And I don't want anything to do with what you are and what you have. And they may turn away. Now, what the devil wants to do is he wants to come to you and say, the reason your kids turned away is because you are a failure. Now, I don't know a parent that I could bring up in this platform that wouldn't have regrets and things they'd like to change when they raise their kids. I mean, there's no perfect parent. And it makes sense if there's no perfect parents, imperfect parents make mistakes, they make, have sins, they have errors. They have, but even no matter how good you may want to be, you're not going to be perfect, but even if you were close to perfect, you still may have a free-willed child that could say, I have been given a will from God to do anything I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I just don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to be a Christian. And then they walk away from the things of God and stay away like Esau, like Esau. Born the same day, Jacob loved God, Esau didn't. The Bible says Esau was profane, called him profane, that ain't a good word. Same mom and dad, same environment. I can go, if I had the time this morning, parent after parent after parent in the Bible who had the same environment. Brothers and sisters had the same environment. My brother Jim had the same environment I had. My brother Louis had the same environment I've had. We three boys were raised in the same environment. Three different outcomes. Now, should mom and dad go around their whole life whipping themselves, cutting themselves, I'm just horrible, I, I'm just terrible? What mom and dad should do is in what areas that they were wrong in, they should go to the kid and ask him to forgive him and try to get right about it. But past that, the kid makes his own decisions. What am I talking about here? Talking about the free will of man is what I'm talking about. Your child, do not go your whole life beating yourself up, condemning yourself, and, and murdering yourself psychologically because you have children that didn't want to do right. Because I know another father that's had a bunch of those kids. God. God. But you do not see God blaming himself for Adam and Eve's disobedience, do you? Why? Because with free will, you have responsibility. With free will, you have responsibility. Your kids, when they get to a certain age of accountability and responsibility, they will answer for the deeds done in their body, whether they be good or bad. That doesn't discourage me as a parent to try to make the best environment and be the best kind of person I should be in front of my kids. I want to do that. I have a responsibility to do that. God says to do that. But after it's all done and dust all settles, it really is up to the kid. Will they decide for Jesus? Will they? What will they do? Now, you know, I know some families who had five kids, three out of five are living for Jesus. I've had some families that have had five kids, all five of them decide they don't want to live for Jesus. I've, I've heard families of five kids, all five of them want to live for Jesus. I've had every combination after that. 
I can't explain it other than tell you there is a responsibility that God gives to you as a parent, and there is a free will that your child has. That's the variable in the equation. The variable is that free will of that child. Will they see Jesus like you did and realize he's the Son of God that died for them and loved them? And will they trust him as their Savior? Will they live for him? They may say, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. But as a parent, we are still responsible to do good things. I think of Samuel, and I end with this. Samuel was the greatest priest of the whole Old Testament. Samuel was a godly person in everything I've been able to read about him. But you know what? Samuel's kids were so bad that the children of Israel said, Samuel, you're getting ready to die, and we don't want your two kids to rule over us like you are, because at that time it was a theocracy. The priest was the actual governor kind of the whole thing. And he said, we don't want, you, we don't want your two kids to do that. They're too bad. Give us a king like the rest of the nations have. And that started that whole almost 500-year period of kings. Because of Samuel, a godly man, a good man, I mean, speak thy servant here. I can't tell you why things like that happen. There's no explanation other than the variable of the free will of man. Father, help us understand the truth today. And may we understand as parents, the influence we have is great among our, around or among our children, grandchildren. But Father, help us also to not fall prey to the devil's destructive, over-condemning, accusing spirit that he wants to bring upon parents who have children that walk away from God. Father, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.
Show.